Well, it's great to be here with you all. I feel like I know many of you through our kids, um, uh, through Jenny and Phil's kids, birthday parties, you know, the whole, the whole thing that we do. Uh, so it was great to walk in and have somebody ask me, are you Cole's dad? Yes, that's the most important thing uh, to know. Uh, today, I want to start with stories. Um, and as I tell these stories, I'd like you to put yourself in the shoes of the people who walk them. Story number one, it's the early 1980s. And a recently married couple is living down the road in D.C. with their newborn child. The father is a very low-level diplomat at the World Bank. They come from East Africa, from Uganda, and they're struggling to make ends meet uh, here in the greater Washington-Baltimore uh, region. Um, and one day, they get word that there has been a regime change at home. It wasn't peaceful, and they as diplomats have been recalled. Uh, it's quickly discovered that the others who have also been recalled have gone missing, or have wound up dead in nearby Lake Victoria. Uh, they don't board the flight home and instead they choose to live here as exiles. That's story number one. Story number two, uh, it's the waning days of the Soviet Union and a Christian family has been persecuted beyond uh, belief and they choose for themselves to flee and to live in exile. They sought refuge in a neighboring country and eventually made their way to Sacramento with their two-year-old son. They arrive in the U.S. Uh, two weeks before the Soviet Union collapses, uh, but even so, it's not safe for them to return home, so they choose to remain in exile. There are more exiles living on the planet today than at any other point in human history. We call them many things from refugees to displaced people to asylum seekers to immigrants. Uh, but the reality is exile is a theme throughout human history, starting with exile from a garden paradise to recent months where we've watched in horror as Afghans have clung to the outside of airplanes and Ukrainians have sought refuge in new places. So it's with this theme of exile that we pick up on this morning, for as we'll see, exiles are sent. We're gonna start in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 29, and this chapter is entitled, A Letter to the Exiles. And it starts this way. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all of those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. In the short time we have today, I'd like to unpack three things from this passage. Uh, number one, God carried his people into exile. It wasn't happenstance or cosmic luck. It was part of his plan. What? Really? God planning something that sounds like suffering, like pain, like injustice? Yes. God causing people to go into exile? Are you sure? Absolutely. Let's look at this passage from the New Testament, Acts 17. The scriptures tell us from one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. 
And he determined the times set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. It was 2010, and my wife and I were living in Chicago at the time, uh, and the church that we were part of uh, worked uh, with World Relief to welcome refugees into the western suburbs of Chicago. Uh, So Sabrina and I and another young couple got paired with a young family. Uh, Their names were Fami and Jasmia. And we did all the things you would do with a newly arrived uh, family. Um, uh, They were from Iraq. We helped them figure out how to navigate grocery stores, how to take the bus, how to get their first job. Uh, We helped them uh, buy their first car. But more importantly, we became friends and we would hang out. Uh, On Saturday mornings, we would watch Premier League soccer together and then go, you know, pretend that we were superstars, you know, on a field and kick the ball around. Um, And we would hang out, we would cook, you know, all the things that people do as friends. Um, But it was hard for them uh, moving from Iraq to the U.S. Uh, But as we'll see in the story, God determined the time and place where they would live so that they could seek out and find him. I remember June of that year, it was Ramadan, the month where Muslims fast, and uh, we lived in a high rise that faced west, and it's the Midwest, so it's completely flat, and so you could see for miles and miles and miles, and you could watch the sunset from our balcony, and so they asked during Ramadan that month, can we come and break fast at your house? Uh, because where we lived in Iraq, we could watch the sunset and it would remind us of home. So we said, of course, absolutely. Um, So we got all the things together. They brought food, uh, we brought food, and it was June. So it's, you know, the longest day of the year. And I remember just sitting there like, oh, dear Jesus, let the sun go down faster. I'm so hungry, you know, right now. And and we did it. The sun sat, uh, set, Um, They prayed, we prayed, and we began to eat this wonderful meal uh, together. And as we, you know, ate and as our blood sugar, you know, went back up, they asked a wonderfully fascinating question. How come Christians don't fast? Which was so interesting, because I couldn't remember the last time or if any time I ever heard a sermon on fasting, you know, in church or it's, excuse me, at small group. Um, But I remembered the story of Jesus fasting in the desert for 40 days. So, you know, we went and got the iPad and, you know, read it in English, clicked the button, you know, they got to read it in Arabic. And wow, uh, this Jesus that you guys follow, he fasted. Never heard that before. Fast forward seven months, it's Christmas. Uh, And Fami and Jasmia loved movies and musical theater. And they asked, could we go and do something, you know, Christmassy like you Americans uh, do? And so there was a church down the street that put on this, you know, like 15 nights in a row, Christmas spectacular, you know, lights, music, uh, the whole thing. And so we took them there and uh, it was great fun. They sang Christmas carols. They had, you know, all the all the things. uh, Right. But the pastor that uh, that Christmas service taught from a passage that I've never heard on Christmas before and probably never will again. He taught of the woman who bled for all the years and pushed her way through a crowd, reached out to touch Jesus' robe and was healed. And I sat there wondering, you know, how comfortable are, are you know, these guys sitting down the aisle going to be with that story when these things aren't spoken about in their culture? I looked down the row 
And he's just sitting there kind of like, oh, this place is so cool. Look at the lights, you know, not really paying attention. And she's crying. And found out later, because she told my wife and some of our other friends um, that she struggled for years to get pregnant. And the culture where she comes from, that's how a woman gets their worth through becoming a mom. Not only did Jesus fast, Jesus also cared about women, something she hadn't heard about before. God puts exiles into places for a reason. He puts them into our community for a reason. Uh, Nehemiah said God carried them there. He puts exiles into our community for a reason too. It's not happenstance or cosmic luck. It's divine guidance. That's point number one. Point number two is that exile is not something you want. It's not a fun place to be. It's not your home. It's not your culture. It's not your language. It feels wrong, like an out-of-body experience. And what does God say to those exiles who are having this out-of-body experience miles away from their homeland? He says, build houses. That's kind of permanent. Settle down. Get married. Have babies. Grow a family. In short, God says, accept your exile. You will live here now. The whole book of 1 Peter in the New Testament is written to exiles. The very first verse says to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout all the provinces. It then says in the next chapter, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners in exile. The letter penned to them speaks at length about the suffering that they encounter as exiles, but it also echoes the themes of acceptance found in Jeremiah. Instead of building houses, planting gardens, and having babies, Peter writes to submit to every authority and get this, to live such good lives in your new home in exile that people accuse you of doing wrong. Exiles are called to accept their exile, but it goes on even further than that. God's command to the exiles is not only to accept their new fate, but to go further and seek the peace and the prosperity of the place where he has carried them and to pray for it. Kind of confusing. Doesn't God know that these people have already experienced injustice? Doesn't he know that they're suffering? Why doesn't he just overturn this injustice with a cosmic act of justice like he did when he freed the slaves from Egypt? Why doesn't he talk about his never-ending love and compassion? God is asking these exiles to do good to people who are doing bad to them. Why? Because if the place of exile prospers, the exiles will also prosper. God is saying, I put you here accept it and live in such a way, seek justice, even in your injustice in such a way to the broader place of exile and you yourself as exiles benefit. Friends, I agree. This does not make a lot of sense uh, to me at face value, but I believe as we dive deeper that this is actually an act of cosmic subversion on the part of God. You see, if I were in exile, I think there would be two different choices. Uh, choice number one uh, would be, you know, to revolt, to join a resistance, to fight back, to, to go and make things right. Uh, and choice number two, I think, would be just to, you know, subvert, to capitulate, um, and to, you know, just, you know, be fatalist as I think about it. Um, 
But God had a different message for the exiles. He asked the exiles to seek a third way, not to revolt and not to give in, to serve and seek the prosperity of the city, of the place where he called them to, and to remain loyal to God. Well, how, do, how does an exile do that? We have examples uh, from uh, the scriptures, uh, from the book of Daniel. You see, Daniel and his friends were the same exiles uh, that Jeremiah was writing to. And they all served and sought to make things better in their new home. They served and they sought to make things right, to bring justice. They were elevated to the halls of power. But even in seeking prosperity for their new home, they never turned away allegiance from God to their new rulers. We all know the stories, right? Daniel, when he was told not to pray to anybody except to the king, wouldn't stop praying to the one true God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't bow down to the king's golden statue um, and were thrown into the fiery furnace. You see, exiles know that their life may be short. They've already looked death in the face as they became exiles. And see, here's where the subversion comes in. In both of those situations, God acted. He showed himself powerful. He vindicated these exiles. And in so doing, more people acknowledged God as the one true God and worshiped him. Fast forward to the time of Jesus. Rome is occupying Israel. And we can imagine it like World War II and France being occupied by Nazi Germany. Uh, and in Jesus' own group, in his own cohort of disciples, uh, there were some who wanted to give in and capitulate to Roman rule and just benefit, you know, from the situation. There were others in the disciple group who wanted, you know, to revolt and join the resistance. But Jesus sought and he taught the third way. He pursued peace and justice for everyone, including his enemies. And much like in Peter's letter to the exiles, he lived such a good life that people accused him of doing wrong. And they arrested him and executed him. But God vindicated him and rose him to life on the third day. God's word to the exiles in Jeremiah continues. And it says, I will gather. Um, I think I mixed up my slides here. Um, uh, sorry about that. Um, I will gather you from all the nations and the places where I have banished you. And I will bring you back from the places from which I carried you into exile. Can you put yourself in their shoes? Can you put yourself in the shoes of the newly married Ugandan family? Of the family from the Soviet Union, of the Afghans, of the Ukrainians? I know it's hard, but I hope that you can. You see, the scriptures are clear that we as followers of Jesus are aliens and exiles and strangers in this world. And God's command to those exiles are also the same commands that he gives to us. We're here because God has determined the exact time and place where we should live. We have all been sent to the greater Baltimore, Washington region, to central Maryland here in 2022, in the midst of one of the most upheaval, you know, like periods in all of human history. And as exiles, what are we told to do? We're told to accept our exile and to seek the peace and the prosperity of the place where God has called us. 
As we begin to close, I want to share another story of exile. We won't read the story in detail because we don't have enough time, but it, but it comes from Genesis chapter 15, and it's an encounter between God and Abram. Um, the background of the story is that in Genesis 12, God calls Abram uh, to leave his home, uh, to go and to live in exile in another land, to leave his family behind, to leave all of his stuff, everything he knows, and travel you know, hundreds of miles uh, to a new place. And as God calls him into exile, he also promises Abram that the whole world will be blessed by him and his descendants. But there's a problem. Abram is 90 years old and hasn't any children. There are no descendants there. Uh, he's living in a land that's not his own. He's surrounded by all these warring kingdoms and tribes of people who just fight, you know, all the time. Um, and, you know, he's wondering, is God going to keep his promise here? Between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, uh, Abraham's nephew, who journeyed with him to this new land, gets caught up in all of this warring tribalism that's happening. And Abraham has to go on basically a search and rescue mission uh, and get his nephew back. Um, he's in exile. He's living in a new land. He's executing the search and rescue mission for his nephew. Uh, and it's ultimately successful, but Abraham is drained, he's exhausted, and he's scared. And that's where we pick up in Genesis 15. God visits Abraham, this exile that he sent to a new land, and he says, Do not be afraid. I am your shield and your very great reward. And we see something very interesting next, that we're conditioned as modern Christians to think is bad. You know, God says, I'm your shield, I'm your reward, don't be afraid. And what does Abraham say back to God? He basically says, God, I don't know if I can count on you to fulfill your promise. I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if you're safe. In our world, uh, in our Christian tradition, we're, we're taught to think, no, we can't ask God those kind of questions. But what does God do? Does God, you know, smite him, strike him down with lightning or fire for his doubts? No. The Bible says that the word of the Lord came to Abram. God was gentle with his doubts. He came with a word of peace. He reminded Abram of who he was and the love that he had for him. He gently reminded him of his promise. No smiting, no lightning, no fire, grace and gentleness oh. to Abraham's doubts. And Abraham believed again, and the scriptures say that it was credited to him as righteousness. But the story goes on. Um, Abraham keeps questioning, and the question changes from, God, how do I know I can trust you with this deal that we've made to how do I know I can trust myself? Your end of this deal is, you know, bless the whole world through my offspring. My end of this deal is to have offspring. Um, and he says, I might not be able to come through on this. I'm 90 years old and I might not be able to fulfill my promise. He's in exile, living in a foreign land and a foreign culture, and he doubts God. And now he's doubting himself and his own abilities. This next part of the story is weird, but also wonderful. God tells him to bring a heifer, a goat, a ram, and some birds. And then he tells him to cut them in half 
except for the birds, because I guess they're too small to cut in half or something, and to spread them out in a field opposite to each other. Now, what's happening here? It seems rather barbaric and, and frankly, quite gross. Uh, but Abraham knew what this was. This was a contract. And in then those days, instead of, you know, writing it out and having, you know, an attorney work on it, they acted out their contract. And when a powerful person entered into a contract with a less powerful person, uh, they would have them cut up animals, cut them in half, put them on a field, and the less powerful person would walk between the animals in the presence of the more powerful person in their, you know, company or, you know, whatever, uh, and basically say that if the less powerful person broke the contract, the more powerful person had the right to cut them up and scatter them in the field like the animals. And as a new person in a foreign land with all these warring uh, you know, little fiefdoms and kingdoms around, we can count on the fact that Abram had done this many times as an exile as he made deals with all of these kings. So what's going on in Abram's mind? Um, if I don't keep my end of the promise, if I don't come through, God's going to cut me to pieces. He's going to make me walk among these animals, acting out what will happen to me if I don't fulfill my end of this promise as an exile living in a new land. Do you ever feel this way as strangers in our world, raising a family, going to work, living in your neighborhood? Have you ever doubted God? Have you ever doubted yourself? I know I have many, many times. So what happens next in this story? Uh, the scriptures say that a dreadful darkness fell on Abraham. Of course it did. He's probably quaking and trembling. You know, who wants to act out his own death? This happened in the daytime. And then we're said, you know, night comes uh, and, and Abram actually falls asleep. He's not going to do it. The, the scriptures actually say enough time has passed that birds come and start picking at the animals and he has to throw stones at them to chase them away. He's sitting on the sidelines. He doesn't want to get into this contract, this covenant that God has with him. So this dreadful darkness comes, Abram falls asleep, and then God does something absolutely amazing. Uh, when the sun had set, Genesis 15 says, and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. What is this fire pot? What's this, this thing going on? If we go back to the original language to Hebrew, it reminds us and uses the same words as two other encounters. It's the same word when God shows up to Moses as the burning bush. And it's the same word when fire comes down on Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. God actually shows up in a physical form to Abram. And he walks between the pieces of cut up animals. Abram's on the sidelines. He's afraid. And God shows up. God, the more powerful party walks through the pieces like the less powerful person is supposed to do. God says, Abraham, if I don't keep my promises to you, may it be that I'm cut up to bits and spread out on the field. But if you don't keep your end of the bargain, Abram, I'll also be cut up to bits. And that's exactly what happened. God keeps his promises. Abram becomes the father of a great nation and God, through Jesus, blesses the world through them. 
but Abram and his offspring don't keep their end of the deal, uh, just like we don't. They fail to keep their promises time and time again. They couldn't keep their end of the covenant, the deal, the contract, and neither can we. And so what does God do? He allows himself to be cut to pieces so that we don't have to. 2,000 years after Abram, God fulfills his promises to bless the whole world when he comes in human form, humbly as a servant, and offer himself, offers himself as the sacrifice that Abram and his descendants and we could never make. Doubting in ourselves, friends, that's justified. We can never keep our end of the contract. But that's okay. We don't have to because God keeps it for us. And like it was credited as righteousness to Abram for believing, it is for us as well. Abram, an exile living in a new land. Jeremiah, an exile. Daniel and his friends, an exile. Us living in exile as strangers and aliens in this world. Put here by God to seek the peace and prosperity of the place where he's called us. To bless the world. So I want to ask you again, can you put yourself in their shoes? The shoes of that Ugandan family, that Russian family, the Afghan families, the Ukrainian families. The two-year-old from that Russian family uh, was resettled by World Relief in Sacramento in 1991. He lived his youth in exile and he could have become bitter, but instead he started a tech company and he democratized the building of websites. And earlier this spring, that company was valued at over $4 billion. The Ugandan family, I had the privilege 14 years ago of marrying their daughter. And she works every day to help make affordable housing more accessible to low-income families all over the country. These two, out of many thousands and hundreds of thousands, even in the injustice that their families experienced, accepted that God had sent them here for a reason at this time and this place to seek the peace and prosperity of where he called them. Not because it's easy, but because it's right. It's the third way, a cosmic act of subversion to the forces of darkness that hold us in our exile. Acting in a third way to bring peace and hope and light. And we, as the called out ones, as exiles in this world, have the privilege to join alongside of them, seeking peace and prosperity wherever God has placed us, in our neighborhood, in our job, with our families, here in Maryland in 2022, knowing that we can't hold up our end of the bargain, but with great joy doing our best because God has kept that bargain for us. God told the exiles in Jeremiah that he would gather them. And he gives us that same promise. Our exile as humans began in a garden, but it will end in a heavenly city, a new city where all the pain of our exile is gone, where all of our tears are wiped away, where death and injustice is finally put to death, where everything is made new, where the chaos and darkness of our world is snuffed out forever by the light of our King, and where there will be a magnitude so large that no one can count from every tribe, nation, from tongue, exiles all invited into a place called home. Let's pray. Jesus, this world that we live in is crazy 
and it's not safe. And we know that as your followers, we can never do our part of fully living out the bargain. Jesus, but you made a way. You've taken our punishment, our sin, uh, our own death, put it upon yourself so that we with joy can live uh, in freedom as exiles, so that we can seek the peace and prosperity of the place where you've called us. And we rest in that, Jesus. And as we come to you, worshiping through song, we pray that uh, you would be pleased with this and that it would shape our view of who you are and what you want for us and from us in the days, months, and years ahead. In your precious name, we pray. Amen.